turn there. And this is one of the sermons that I'm going to do for our weekly meeting, our large group meeting uh, for RUF this next semester. Um, It's in a series called Meals with Jesus. Jesus fasted one time that we know of in his earthly ministry. But Jesus feasted often. Jesus knew how to throw a party, or at least how to attend one. He, he, he ate so much that the Pharisees and the religious leaders of that time called him a, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. This is an excerpt from a, from a book called A Meal with Jesus by author and pastor Tim Chester. This is what it says. There are three ways that the New Testament completes the sentence, the Son of Man came. Mark 10.45, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Luke 19.10, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And then Luke 7.34, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. So the first two are statements of purpose. Why did Jesus come? He came to serve to give his life as a ransom, to seek and to save the lost. And then the third is a statement of method. How did Jesus come? Jesus came eating and drinking. Now, for us, that's a, that's a very astounding approach. Jesus' method of ministry, a significant part of Jesus' ministry was long meals shared together in someone's home that lasted late into the night where he would talk and interact with people, get to know them, share life with them. So this fall semester with RUF, we're going to focus on meals with Jesus. We're going to go through the Gospels. We're going to look at all the meals that Jesus was involved in, miracles that he performed during meals, uh, parables that he taught during meals, interactions he had with sinners during meals. And this is one of those meals that we're going to read about today. It's a great meal provided through a great miracle from a great Savior. This is one of the very few events that's recorded by all four of the gospel writers. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all remember the feeding of the 5,000. And we're going to look at that. It tells us that this is a significant event. It tells, tells us a lot about their ministry and what Jesus called them to do. Before we look at the passage uh, I want to tell you about one of our favorite movies. Now, this, uh, this movie only got a 5% rating on the movie rating site called Rotten Tomatoes. It's, it got horrible reviews, but we watch it every single year. My wife especially, she's not an avid movie watch, watcher, but she still cracks up at some of these scenes, even though she's seen it so many times. The movie is called Christmas with the Cranks. It's based on a John Grisham novel, the guy who writes all the, the law dramas. It's a, based on one of his books called Skipping Christmas. In this story, the movie follows a, a couple, Luther and Nora Crank, and their youngest daughter, or their only daughter, Blair, leaves the country for South America to serve in the Peace Corps in Peru. And in an effort to save money after she leaves, in an effort to save money and to avoid the sadness of a Christmas without her, 
Luther recommends to his wife, Nora, that they skip Christmas in exchange for a Caribbean cruise. And the rest of the movie plays out the funny scenarios of the cranks trying unsuccessfully to go on this cruise and to sneak away from all their neighbors who are pressuring them into doing Christmas together. At one point, a neighborhood mob actually forms outside of their house to keep them from going on this vacation. But this is basically how our passage begins today. The apostles had been working hard in the previous chapter. Jesus sent them out on mission, and they went out and did amazing things, performed miracles, shared the gospel with those around them. And the first thing Jesus does when they return is he tells his disciples, you look tired. You need to rest. You've been doing a lot. You need to rest. Let's go on a retreat in the woods to a desolate place away from all these people where you can replenish. And so notice, as we think about this passage, Jesus does not use people. It's very easy in ministry, in churches, in campus ministry like the one that I do, to use people for the ministry, to use them to make the ministry go. But that's not how Jesus interacts with people. Imagine they had just done all of this stuff, and the first thing that Jesus says to them is, you need to rest. You need to take a break. You've been working very hard. As they're describing all they did, Jesus tells them to stop and to rest. He wants to replenish their bodies and their souls. He doesn't use the disciples, but he's respectful of their physical limits, their spiritual needs, their energy levels. And this whole passage shows us three ways, at least three ways, we're going to look at those three ways, that enables them... Uh, where Jesus does not use people but cares for them, provides for them. And Jesus relates to us, the way that he relates to us, empowers us to serve him more eagerly, more passionately, and more helpfully. We're going to look at three ways that he does that in this passage. First, he has compassion. Second, he sends us on mission. And then third, that he provides for us. So we'll read this passage, we'll pray And then we'll uh, talk about it for a little bit. Mark 6, verses 30 through 44. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And Jesus said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When they went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But Jesus answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found it, they said, five and two fish. Then Jesus commanded them all to sit down in groups by the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. 
And taking the five loaves and the two fish, Jesus looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Let's pray. Father, as we look at this amazing, unbelievable, incomprehensible miracle this morning, I pray that you would use it to open our eyes to see reality the way that it truly is, that we would live in light of that, that we would be drawn closer to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jesus sees his worn out disciples. He sees their hard work and he calls them to rest. So as a way to do that, he takes them on a cruise across the Sea of Galilee. The only problem was they were followed by a mob of needy people. The passage says says they saw them, they recognized them, and then they chased after them. They anticipated where they were going and they ran around and beat them there. It made me think of those scenes in the scary, in scary movies, you know, when you're trying to run away from the bad guy, from the killer, and you run into your house and you shut the door and you lock it and you turn around and he's somehow standing right there, right? Or it's maybe even a scarier scenario if you have three small children that live in the house with you. And I, I had this experience the other day. I, I got up with the kids, let my wife sleep because, you know, I'm a great husband and father and I wanted her to rest. And so I, I got all the kids some breakfast. I turned on a cartoon for them. I settled down in my chair. And I had my Bible and a book that I've been reading through. And I had my coffee. I pulled my coffee near. And then the first one came up to me and wanted to sit down in the chair with me. I said, okay, well, you know, we... We do have other seats in the house. Like, y'all can sit, you know, over there or over there. You know, there's, there's other places to sit. You don't have to sit right next to me. Well, the first one refused and got up in my lap anyway. And then the second one followed closely behind. And by the time that the third one came walking up, I said, all right, I'm getting up. And I stood up and I moved to another seat. And they all, of course, followed after me. And this went on for a little while And all I wanted to do was to spend a few quiet moments at the beginning of the day to get my day started. I just like, leave me alone. Can't you see I'm trying to grow spiritually? You know, give me some space. But I don't don't know how my wife does it. I would probably just lock myself in the bathroom and hope that they didn't come looking for me. But, But it's interesting here to see what happens with Jesus when he sees this crowd. Jesus and his disciples are exhausted. The text says they haven't even had time to eat. They are worn out. They're just trying to get away for a little bit to re-energize. But they're relentlessly pursued by this massive crowd of people. These people are literally running over themselves, running over each other to get to Jesus. When Jesus sees this crowd of people, He has compassion. He has a deep love and care. And I think about my reaction. My first reaction would be anger, like with my children, right? Just step back, 
Give me a little space. I'll be back here tomorrow. Y'all can wait that long. I just need a little bit of quiet time. But that's not what Jesus does. Jesus is moved by their need. He's not angered by their need. He's moved by it. And the text says he looks on them as sheep without a shepherd. He sees them pursuing and he sees them in need of someone to lovingly lead and care for them. Then I think about what my second reaction is. Okay, maybe I get past the anger and everything. The second reaction I probably have is is my ego would be inflated. I'd be pretty proud of myself, right? The text says that there's 5,000 men, which probably means there are about 15,000 people. That's how many people go to a JSU football game. And they're all following me. I would have the biggest RUF in the country. I'd immediately want to get the cameras out, take some pictures, put it in the newsletter. Y'all would all be amazed at how great of a pastor I am. But that's not what Jesus does. His ego doesn't inflate. He doesn't get puffed up by how many people want him. He immediately thinks about how he can serve them. He begins to do it. He begins to serve them spiritually by teaching them. And he even serves them physically by giving them food. He, he serves them in word and in deed. He teaches them. He feeds them. So we see the first way that Jesus doesn't use people for his own purpose. You know, when people get in the way of what I want to do, I, I react angrily. Now, when they make me feel good, I react with an inflated ego. Jesus doesn't do either of those things. He doesn't use people. He has compassion on them, and he serves them because he loves them and he cares for them, right? We see that Jesus has compassion. He doesn't use people. He has compassion. And secondly, we see that Jesus sends people on mission. You know, after a while, the crowd begins to get hungry. It's getting late into the day. The disciples say, you know, why don't we just kind of wrap up this worship service? This was fun, but it's time for everybody to go back home. You know, they, if they wait too long, they're going to have an angry mob on their hands. People who are hungry and need provision. The people had served their purpose for a while, but now it was time for them to leave, right? They had turned into a burden. The disciples wanted to bail out of the situation before it became a bigger problem than they could handle. But Jesus doesn't let them do that. Instead, Jesus does something very surprising, something remarkable. He says, you give them something to eat. He looks at the disciples and he says, not I will give them something to eat, but you give them something to eat. By saying this, Jesus brings out two things. First, he brings out the responsibility of the disciples. And secondly, he brings out the inability of the disciples. Their responsibility and their inability. Now, we're confronted with this feeling every day, I feel like, nowadays, that we have a responsibility to do stuff and an inability to, to make a difference. Now, there's this TV show called The Newsroom, and uh, there's this character who is, he's a, he's a news anchor, and he's interviewing somebody who is a climate scientist about new recent 
findings that they found on global warming and climate change and everything. Now, before I say this, this is just a TV show. I don't have a particular view on global warming or climate, climate science. I'm not trying to persuade you of anything. There are a few things that I know less about than science. So this is, just take that. It's an illustration. So, so the, what the scientist says is this, that all these efforts to fight global warming are too late. And they won't make a difference. They're unsuccessful. He says this. If we face this problem head on, if we listen to our best scientists, and if we act decisively and passionately, I still don't see a way that we can survive. The scientist continues to pile on these doomsday scenarios. He says that there's going to be mass migrations and food and water shortages, spread of deadly diseases, endless wildfires. He says, a dystopian post-apocalyptic life. So as he talks about this, the interviewer gets more and more frustrated. Right? He keeps on asking the scientists to put a better spin on this, to give them some reason to hope, an optimistic take. And the staff in the control room, because this is a TV show about a news channel, it shows the staff in the control room, and they are frozen and speechless. They're looking at the monitors, and their mouths are just hanging open. The show highlighted what I think is something we hate to feel, that we hate to feel like we have a responsibility to do something, but an inability to help. In a lot of ways, when we watch the news, we see about crimes and wars and, and poverty and hunger, and we're just overwhelmed by the amount of need that is in the world, and we feel this responsibility to, uh, to help out. We're confronted with the great brokenness and evil and need of our world, but there seem to be no solutions. And I think that knowing this makes us sad and depresses us. And so we fight this feeling sometimes with anger. There are a lot of angry people now. And I think up under that anger is a helplessness. It's kind of a fear of not being able to, to help out. But you turn on any TV show, you go on social media, and there's anger everywhere. And I think a lot of it comes from this fear of an inability to do anything. Or another way we deal, deal with it is we just completely check out and we pursue mind-numbing entertainment. We fill our lives with hobbies and TV shows and, and movies and different things to take our minds off of the great need that's around us. But Jesus doesn't let the disciples get out of this. He says he wants them to feed 15,000 people. I'm sure they felt this wave of panic and anxiety come over them. That their faces just turn gray and a million questions rush into their head. And one of them looks at all the people and he calculates up. He says this would be 200 days worth of labor just to be able to buy them stuff. And it's late in the day, so none of the stores are going to be opened. You know, they didn't have a Walmart that was open 24 hours a day, right? Um, there's no way to do it. One pastor who was preaching on this, he mentions that, uh, asks if you were a loaf and fish counter, 
He says, if you're a loaf and fish counter, then you'll give up because there's never going to be enough. We're never going to have the resources that we need to take care of the needs that we see around us. Jesus tells them to give the crowd something to eat. He doesn't answer their objections. He doesn't explain what he's about to do. I mean, they've seen Jesus perform miracles. He could have easily said, hey, guys, don't worry. I'm going to take this. I'm going to multiply it. It's going to be a miracle. We're going to feed everybody. He doesn't do that. All Jesus does is he asks them what they have, and he asks them to have faith. He says, show me what you have, and then trust me. He asks them what they have, and they come back with five loaves and two fish. And Jesus could have responded in a couple of ways. He could have scolded them for their lack of preparation. Say, 15,000 people here, and all you can come up with is like enough lunch for one person? Really? Like, go back out, look harder. You, you have to come up with more than that. He doesn't scold them for their lack. He also doesn't hoard the food, right? He doesn't get the five loaves and the two fish and say, okay, well, let's sneak off here on the corner and, and we'll eat. And while we're eating and getting full, because we can't really take care of people on empty stomachs, we can brainstorm and think of some ways that we might be able to help all these people out. That's what I would have done. He doesn't do either of those things. They give it to him. Jesus asks us what resources we have. And then he asks us to have faith, to offer them to him sacrificially and to trust that he's going to do amazing things with them. So it may seem odd. I mean, it does seem odd that Jesus asked the disciples to provide for this massive group of people without giving them, knowing that they wouldn't be able to do it, right? He knows that they won't be able to provide for 15,000 people. Why does he ask them to participate? Jesus could have rained down manna from heaven. did it in the Old Testament. He could have turned stones into bread. He would have been able to do it in the wilderness, right? Bringing the disciples into this, asking them to participate, sending them on mission, at best is unnecessary, and at worst only makes things more complicated for Jesus. At worst, it slows him down and gets in the way. So why does he do it? He invites them... He invites us into his work so that we might see who he truly is. So that we might trust more deeply in his goodness. So that we might receive joy from participating in his work in the world. Jesus doesn't call us on a mission because he can use our resources, use our gifts and talents. Jesus doesn't look at us and go, man, that guy's really, really good. I need to get him on my team, right? Jesus calls us because he knows it will grow us. He knows it will give us great joy. He knows it will draw us closer to him and make us look more like him if we participate with him on mission. So it may seem weird that Jesus sends us on mission and that's a way that he doesn't use people. Because he doesn't need us. He calls us on mission because he wants to serve us and to grow us and to make us more like him. Lastly, we see that Jesus provides. You know, he takes their 
their loaves and fish, and he tells the disciples to organize the people. Still doesn't tell them why. You know, the disciples are tired and hungry. They haven't gotten a break. They're worn out, maybe frustrated. There's 15,000 people and 12 disciples, so they can't exactly work in shifts. You know, they all have to be scrambling around together. But even without all of the answers, the disciples obey. It's what we're called to do. We don't have all the answers all the time, but Jesus calls us to obey because we trust in his goodness. And again, Jesus doesn't scold them for their lack. What a comforting thing that is. Because, you know, we could always do more. We could have always done better. I look over the past year and I never really truly gave it my best because we don't have the capacity to give it our 100% undivided best at anything. Now, if we do that with one thing too, we give up on all kinds of other things in our lives. We have to make compromises. We're, we're limited physical beings, right? Everything we do is always small and insufficient and inadequate. And then because we're sinners, we're fallen, everything is tainted with sin and mixed in with our own backward selfish motives. But Jesus doesn't make us feel like failures. He doesn't make us feel like we disappointed him. He doesn't scold us. He does what he does here. With us, he does what he does with the disciples. He receives our resources, our gifts, our talents, what we have. He gives thanks for it. That's what he does here. Offers it to God. And then he takes what we give him, the little that we give him, and multiplies it beyond anything that we could imagine. Jesus doesn't use his people. Instead, he cares for and provides for them so that we can serve joyfully from his bountiful provision. You know, in some senses, what we see happen in this passage is not a miracle at all. Because it's the way that Jesus works every day, right? He uses ordinary people with ordinary resources to do ordinary things, but those things have extraordinary impact. This past um, week, one of the nights I went out with some of the other RUF pastors and we saw movies. I saw um, the movie about Mr. Rogers, right? Um, that's, that's been a movie that I've heard so much about. People were talking it up and talking about how wonderful it was. And, and it is. It's a, good, it's a good movie. And it's, um, it's, it's kind of unique among movies that we see now. It makes you really feel good in the movie theater and I think encourages you to be a better person. But really, as you look at Mr. Rogers, he didn't do anything magnificent. He didn't have any, I mean, he was a good piano player, and, but he didn't have any extraordinary abilities and talents. He was just a loving person. He was, he was in a lot of senses, an ordinary person who did ordinary things that we should all do, and it made an extraordinary impact. That's how Jesus uses us in people's lives. We do small, ordinary things. And he uses it. He takes it and multiplies it beyond anything that we could imagine. And you see here, after Jesus takes these scraps that the disciples offer him, he abundantly feeds thousands and thousands of people that are present. 
He brings great fullness in this desolate place. And they had leftovers. Had 12 baskets of leftovers. One for each of the disciples to remember who, who it is that really provides for them when they're on mission. And then here in the, in the end, he, he takes this. It says he takes the loaves and the two fish, looks up to heaven, said a blessing, broke the loaves, and gave them to the disciples. Taking, thanking, breaking, and giving. Those are the same words in the same order as when Jesus does the Lord's Supper. Now, ultimately, Jesus provides for us by dying and by welcoming us because he was abandoned. Now, Jesus reminds us even here that we're not the ones who can provide for our own salvation. Only he can do that. He takes the small things that we give him. And he, not because it's some kind of resource that he can use, but he gives us himself more than we could ever ask or imagine. That Jesus himself on the cross was hungry and thirsty, abandoned, so that we could be provided for physically, so we could be provided for spiritually, so that we could be welcomed in. And then, not only that, not only would we be served, but we would be called like these disciples to go out on mission with him, to serve in the world. Not wondering, oh man, am I going to have enough? Am I going to be good enough to serve Jesus? No, Jesus calls us rest, relax. What do you have to offer? And I'll take it and do amazing things. And this church is a testament to that. That you bring what you have to offer. And you see through, through this, in this bulletin, in this order of worship, that God has used it to spread his gospel throughout the ends of the earth. It's an amazing thing, something we could never accomplish on our own. So let's draw closer to Jesus this week. Remember that he's the one who provides for us. That we would have compassion for others like he has compassion on us. And we would sacrificially give the little bit that we have, trusting Jesus' goodness to multiply it beyond all that we can imagine. Let's pray together. Father, we give you thanks that we are not just passive observers of your glory, that we are not just passive recipients of your grace, but that you call us and empower us by your Holy Spirit to participate in what it is that you do in the world. Not because we have something to offer you, not because we are a great asset for your kingdom, but because you want us to grow. You want us to learn. You want us to trust in you. I pray that that would be on our minds and hearts this week as we encounter those around us, that we would think of ways that we can offer them the little bit that we have, trusting that you'll use it in amazing ways. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.